Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 6 through 9. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, On the seventeenth day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heaven were open, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Amen. You know, there are literally hundreds of people groups across history, uh, across continents, across cultures, across millennia that have their own account and version of this story of the great flood, of a worldwide flood. And some of these are, in case you're keeping track at home, there are the Samokubo tribe of New Guinea, the Papago Native Americans of Arizona, there are Brazilian Native American tribes, Peruvian Native cultures, the African Hottentots, Natives of Greenland, uh, Native Hawaiian Islanders, Hindus, Chinese, Egyptians, Greeks, Persians, Australians, Welsh, Celts, Druids, Siberians, and Lithuanians, to name a few. 
A man by the name of Dr. James Boyce, he was a prominent 20th century uh, American Bible scholar. He looked at them all and sort of put them side by side, looked for some similarities, and he pointed out that of the more than 200 different cultures all over the world throughout time that have their own account of a worldwide flood, the following aspects of the story are common to all of them. He said 88% of them describe a favored family. 70% attribute survival to a boat. 95% say the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. 66% say that the disaster is due to man's wickedness. 67% record that animals are also saved. 57% describe that the survivors end up on a mountain. And many of the accounts also specifically mention birds being sent out, a rainbow, and eight persons being saved. What about that? Now, when you see all this, what does it tell you? Hmm? Well, you could ignore the most obvious answer. You could insist like your favorite Hungarian psychoanalyst and mine, Geza Roheim, that every single culture across time and history hallucinated it all in dreams because they had too much to drink and went to sleep with their bladders full. I did not make that part up. He's saying it's kind of like that scene in the movie Inception. You guys ever seen Inception, right? Where the guy's got too much pre-flight champagne and then it rains on everybody once they enter his dream world. Yeah, it's all connected somehow, I guess. But the point is, we could theorize this is all a coincidence. But when you see something like this, this consistent across time and cultures, what's more likely? What's most likely? What's, What's most likely is that it actually happened. But. What the biblical account is concerned with is not that it happened primarily, but what it is concerned about primarily is what it means and most of all, what it shows you about the person of God. And that's what Genesis is really all about, as we've been saying every week. Genesis is all about who God is and how he reveals himself to us, to humanity. And that is so helpful to remember. Otherwise, man, when you read a story like this, you just get caught up in all the eh, competing narratives of what it can be, you know, groups that try to co-opt it for their messages. You know, like some groups have, like on the the last uh, movie about this called Noah with Russell Crowe, it was sort of like the ultimate uh, pro-environmentalist message, like environmentalist good, uh, you know, anti-environmentalist bad. God wipes out, you know, the people that don't like the earth. Uh, or it's um, uh, like the ultimate conservative, you know, caricature where all the bad guys get dealt with and wiped out. Or it's like a children's story, some people call it, I guess. You know, like Don Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz, points out, why do we tell this story to our kids at bedtime? Like, you know, kids, God wipes out the earth. Go to sleep now, little one, you know. So what's the story all about? What does Noah and this whole flood narrative show us about God? That's the question we ought to be asking, and that's what the writer is trying to tell us. And I believe this story, above all, stakes the claim once and for all to all the people across the world, time and culture, that this God, the biblical God, is Lord of all. He's Lord of the planet, this is saying. He's king over the whole world. He's king over the earth, the na- uh, elements, nature itself. He's king over us, Lord of the whole planet. That's what this story <coughs> is all about. And what I'm hoping to show you today is not only that those claims are true, but I hope to show you why you should want those claims to be true as well. 
So who is this God? Who's the biblical God? What's he supposed to be Lord of? Well, let's see that through the four main features of all the narrative, chapters 6 through 9. Four main parts of the story we're going to see in order. He is Lord of the earth. Number two, he's Lord of the storm. Lord of the ark. And finally, that he is the God of the second chance. But let's begin here and look at number one and see why this is saying he is Lord of the earth. Look at, uh, I think it's near the end, chapter 8, chapter 9. After the flood is over, uh, after the, the waters recede, verse 16 says this, we read it. Come out of the earth, out of the ark, you and your wife and all y'all. I just condensed that for you. Bring out, it says, every kind of living creature that they can, the last line, multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it now. Does that last line kind of sound familiar to you? Yeah, it should. Why? Because it's what God told Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Be fruitful, increase, multiply. And even though we didn't have time to read it, if we look careful at the whole story, we'll see all through these chapters the concern that God has for the earth and for the animals. Uh, for example, back in, in chapter 6 when God's given all those instructions to Noah, right, about the ark, man, it takes like... Eight lines just to tell Noah how to get the animals into the ark and what he's going to feed them and what he's going to do and how they're going to make it in. The point is, in Hebrew narrative, which is notoriously sparse, that's the modern day equivalent of a movie slow motion shot. It's slowing down the story so you won't miss the point, which is this. The point of all the talk about all the animals is that God loves all of them. And another point, he says, listen, I set my rainbow in the clouds. It'll be the sign of the covenant between me and what? What's he say? The earth. Yeah, see, listen, God only makes covenants that are, here's the word, that are salvific, that are saving. He makes covenants to save stuff, to save people. He makes covenants because he loves something and he wants to redeem and save it. And this is showing us, therefore, that God has a, he's got a kind of a, of a personal relationship with the environment. And to relate to him has got to mean we care about what he cares about. You may say, well, why, why does God, you know, why does he care for the earth so much that even at, you know, right here, uh, humanity's lowest point, he can't quit talking about the earth and animals and all the creatures. You could say, well, Morgan, that's because he made them all, right? Well, that's in part, but I think there's more going on here. Think about who you love, what you love. For those of you who have pets, right? Why do you love them? Well, to a large extent, you love your pet because it loves you back. And if that part ever kind of quits on you, probably the pet goes as well, right? But anyway, but sometimes in the same way, even the people, right? The people that you love the most are just the people who love you back. And therefore, in that light, think about Psalm 19, for example. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens, right? The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Uh, Psalm 96 says, look at the oceans. Listen to the noise that they make. You know, that, that noise that the oceans make, that roar, that's the roar of praise. That's the roar of the oceans praising God. And look at the trees, Psalm 96 says. When you see trees with their hands up, right? It's like their arms are out there praising and clapping because it says they see God for who he really is. You say, well, that's kind of poetic, right? Nice. No, no, no. Think about it. Why do you like to go? Why do people like to go listen to the ocean? 
listen to a waterfall? What do you what do you see in a sunset? What you're seeing isn't just science, right? Although that's part of it too, but isn't there more? Yes. You're seeing beauty in the sunset, right? You're hearing a kind of music in the waterfall, in the ocean. What's going on? Psalm 19 told you. Day after day, nature is pouring forth speech. It's talking to God. It's got an omnipresent radio frequency broadcasting praise to God. And we, as human beings, are just listening in. We're listening in. Nature, in other words, is just loving God back. Elizabeth Elliot said this. She said, a clam is a better clam than you are a person. She said, oysters are, are better at being oysters than you are at being a person. She says, because that oyster just offers God up the best of who it is. It offers God up that pearl. He said, you and I, we, sorry for the pun, we clam up. <laughs> Whenever God asks us for something, right? That clam just gives him its best. The oyster just gives God that pearl every time. See, to love God is to love what he cares for, what he cares for. And therefore, here's the point, Christians of all people ought to have the best basis for environmental stewardship and a belief that ecological concern is good and right and holy and just. Does God only care for people here? No. He cares for the animals as well, and he does throughout the Bible, the Psalms, the Prophets, the Book of Revelation. It's all there. Because nothing God has made is purposeless. He is Lord of the earth. And the command that he makes to, and gives to Adam and Eve, he renews with Noah here and gives to us as well. He's saying, don't forget, care for the planet because it's mine first. It's his first. Why? Because he is, number one, Lord of the earth. Lord of the earth, but he's also, also now, number two, this is where it gets a bit sticky. <laughs> he's Lord of the storm. Lord of the storm, why does the storm, the whole central feature, why does this storm happen? Verse 11, look at it. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now, whew, of course, right away, we sort of recoil at that, right? I mean, that's really hard to read, tough to hear, and it's so tough. Uh, a few years ago, if you saw it on PBS, there was this PBS special that Bill Moyers, uh, uh, man, I did that first service too, hoisted, Moyers hoisted, no, Moyers hosted, easy for me to say, Moyers hosted the PBS special, there we go, uh, and he had this round table discussion about Genesis, it was called Genesis, and at the end of it, all these scholars, all these, you know, smart people, they looked at this passage. Genesis 6 through 9, and they said, this passage is the reason we don't like the Bible. This is the reason that people don't like the Bible. This passage is the reason people turn away from God and faith and church. And the thought went like this. They thought, well, haven't we had enough ethnic cleansing, right? Uh, haven't we seen enough examples of people groups wiping each other out? So is, we know because that's wrong. What God does here is wrong. He is therefore just another bloodthirsty ethnocentric deity wow well is that it you know because bill moyer said so you know if god's just done you know see ya bye-bye you know call it a day no why do why do we react against this passage 
Well, think about it. I think that the reason this PBS roundtable reacted to it and reacted to God's judgment was because they think, and they acknowledge, they think that believing in something like this, believing in a God like this, turns people themselves into angry, judgmental, violent, retaliatory kind of people. They're saying there's enough violence in the world and this just makes us more violent. But I want to tell you, they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong because they're reading this wrong. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Munich by Steven Spielberg. It's all about the assassination of these 11 Jewish athletes at the 72 Olympics in Munich at the hands of Black September. It was a a Palestinian terrorist group. And it's all about what happens next. Because in the movie and in real life, the prime minister of Israel uh, okayed a secret uh, mission to assassinate and to hunt down and kill those Palestinians. But what's remarkable, uh, of course, about the movie and what Spielberg caught all kind of flack for, if you remember, was that he chose over the movie to show how those who you know carried out the revenge killings became more and more dehumanized the more violence they did the less human they became the more they killed the more they suffered and the movie actually ends with one jewish man begging the other just to break bread with him but the other man said no i can't we've done and seen too much the question the movie leaves you with is, well, what if we refused to take revenge? And this is what violence does to us. What if we could drop the sword person against person, culture against culture against one another? And you know what? That's a great question. But I think a better question is, well, what could actually help us do that? What could actually help us drop the sword against neighbors and cultures and nations and help keep us doing that? And I think that's an important question to ask because, you know, if, if this is half something like this has happened to you, forgiveness just isn't that easy, right? I mean, if you can like snap your fingers and drop something, it didn't really bother you in the first place. It didn't really hurt you. You know you got hurt because it hurts right? You know you got hurt because you felt the stab. You felt the wound because you're bleeding out all over the place. So what can help us not stab back? And I think, again, it's an important question to ask because once evil, hear me, once evil is done to you, the Bible says evil is a spiritual force that acts through other people into your life. And once it is done to you, it begins to sow its seeds, send out its tendrils. Evil is like a poison seed that goes into you and begins to work on you, causing you to do evil back. The proverb says, listen, once evil's done to you, oh, don't say in your heart, I'm going to do back to them as they've done to me. Why would you begin to say that? Well, of course, that's because what evil makes you do. Look at Noah's generation, top to bottom, the whole generation filled with evil, corrupt top to bottom, violent over and over again, cycles of retaliatory vengeance. What could keep a culture from doing that? What can keep us from doing that? The Bible says it makes the case, brilliantly, I think, that we can put the sword of judgment down now Because God will pick it up then. God will pick it up then. He does it here in part. And the rest of the Bible says he'll do it again in full in a way. And this shows us this. That in the end, hear me, it is not a belief. Oh, it's not a belief. Moyers and his group was wrong. It is not a belief in God as judge, which turns us into violent people. It's actually more like real life in the movie Munich. A belief that God is not the final judge that turns us into violent people because we think we have to be. That's what turns people, cultures, nations, violent. 
And people say, oh, I still don't like that. Don't like it at all. I don't like the idea that there's a God who wields the sword somewhere. Oh, but listen, consider the thoughts, because we will, <laughs> of a man named Miroslav Volf. He's a, a Croatian theologian at Yale. He was raised as a minority in the Balkan Peninsula in Croatia, and he saw his own sisters raped, his own uncle's throat slit by violence being systematically persecuted by the majority culture. And he came to Christ in faith, and he discovered this. He wrote, he said, one could object that it's not worthy of God to wield the sword. Because isn't God just, you know, isn't he just love? Isn't he just long-suffering? Isn't he just all-powerful love? But he said, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, he says, I'm less interested in arguing that God's violence isn't unworthy of him than I am interested in showing that it's beneficial to us. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. That we should bring down the powerful from their thrones seems responsible. That God should do the same? That seems crude. And so, he concludes, violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Fulf is saying this. Think about that neighborhood. Think about that relationship. Think about that nation. What, what could make that a more peaceful place? What's, gonna, what's it going to take to enable them to put down the sword? Fulf says, if you'll see that God is the one who does this with the right to wield it and who will wield it, he says, you'll be turned into a person, person of peace. If you'll do that, if you'll take that into you today, because this God is, number two, Genesis is saying he's Lord of the storm as well. Number one, he's Lord of the earth. Number two, he's Lord of the storm. But he's also, number three now, Lord of this, Lord of the ark, Lord of the ark. Now, remember a moment ago, I said that you only really know if someone got to you, if you start to bleed in a way, yeah. Well, what sets this whole story in motion, huh? It is, as we'll see, the bleeding heart of God. Verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Wow. Now listen, before we see this next verse, if you think that the God of the Bible is some just, you know, angry, you know, smoke, producing deity who just rubs his hands in delight and flicks people off, you know, of the precipice into hell somewhere cackling. It just shows you haven't read the Bible and you certainly haven't read this passage. Look at verse six. How does human evil make God feel? It says the Lord regretted he had made human beings and his heart was deeply troubled. And people got a hard time with this verse too, of course. They say, what? what? God says he's sorry for making people. What does this mean? Oh, well, in my own life, a few years ago, uh, someone, I think trying to be nice, tweeted out a quote from me, something I'd said on a Sunday, you know. And next thing you know, someone online took offense. Shocker. And there's this big debate. People are mad and angry and fighting each other. And now it kind of looked like every inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. But the problem with the whole thing was this. I never actually said what they said I said. Someone like paraphrased it changed to like the most crucial words, reversed entirely the meaning and the internet was off to the races. And you know what? I saw, I thought when I saw people doing that and taking that the wrong way, I thought, I regret it that I ever said that. 
I'm sorry I ever said that. I'm sorry people took something I meant as good, tweaked it, and used it as a means of fighting one another. But that's just a drop in the bucket of what God feels here. A small fraction of what he feels. It goes on, goes on to say, his heart was deeply troubled. It literally means God's heart hurt because of the evil of people and what he was going to do about it. Now, people ask all the time, maybe you've asked before, I mean, if God knew all the, the stuff that was going to happen, all the evil and violence that was going to go down in the world and how it would hurt people, well, why did he even make people? Why did he make people in the first place or let them go on? Have you ever asked that? Yeah, maybe you have. And if you haven't, I'm sure someone's asked you that. Why did God make people if this was going to be the result? Well, I think the answer is, if he hadn't made people, he couldn't have had you. He couldn't have had you. He couldn't have had me. Couldn't have had us. I think that not only having you exist, but seeing the beauty of who you are, and having and nurturing the hope that one day you'd come back to him and that you would like nature, that you would love him back, that's what enabled him to go through all that he's gone through throughout human history. See, see, God's desire, the point is, in this story, to show us that he desires us to come back to him, and that's, like he, that's why he acts like he acts here, because he wants you now. He provided a way of escape for Noah then. And what is that way? It's the ark. It's the ark. God had Noah make an ark, hear me, of salvation, right, to rescue his family. Eight and all, eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. It was chosen on purpose. And in Noah's day, those eight people, all who called on the name of the Lord, they were saved. What saved Noah? What saved him? What in the water? It was being in the ark of salvation. And it says that at one point, the last point, God himself shut the door, which is a way of saying at some point it becomes too late for those who reject him to safely get inside. Now, can you imagine Noah, right? He's got this message to deliver all the humiliation he must have suffered and gone through at the hands of his peers. I mean, judgment on evil, Noah. I mean, eye roll, right? Side eye. Come on, Noah. Judgment. Noah, you're crazy talking about judgment. No one wants to hear about judgment, Noah. Better from this God of yours. Only one way to be saved. Are you like some kind of intolerant, closed-minded bigot, Noah? Now, probably all Noah could say was, I don't know. All I know is that God's heart hurts and he can't let the evil continue and he's made a way out. Anyone can get inside. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can come on inside with me and a lot of my animal friends too, if you can make it. See, because God is just, he's got to put an end to evil. He's Lord of the storm. But because he loves us and his heart hurts, he's Lord of the ark. He provides a way of escape for us to be saved. And so Noah goes into the ark. And his family goes into the ark. And the animals go into the ark as well. But did you know that something else actually went into the ark with them as well? Anybody want to take a guess at what it was? I think I heard someone say, yeah, you think you cheated from first service, second service. Just kidding. It was sin. Sin went into the ark as well because it it went inside Noah's heart, right? It went inside the hearts of all his family members. And you can see that because once he comes out, Noah, he goes a little crazy probably because of the little touch of PTSD he had. And he messes up his whole family, reignites the world with sin. 
But the point, therefore, of this story is to show all of us, liberal or conservative, that even if everybody on earth were wiped out, even if it started over with just the perfect, ideal-looking human specimens like, you know, Will and Jada Smith, maybe, or, you know, Chris Hemsworth uh, and his wife, or maybe if it just started over, maybe, with just you and me, you know. Sin, to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, sin finds a way. So what is God going to do about it? What will he do about it? What did he do about it? Number four, he became now, I love this, the God of the second chance. God both promises something and points to something here in the climax of the story. Let's see what it is. Verse 18. So it says, Noah came out together with his sons and wife and sons' wives, and God said, Oh, this is the sign of the covenant. I'm making between me and, you, me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. It'll be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So what does God promise? Well, he promises not to bring judgment again through a flood on the earth. And he says, you can know this is true because he says, of something I have put in the clouds. Now, what's that thing? We think of the word of that. We, you know, we hear the word for that. We think in our minds the word rainbow. And we think, oh, it's a nice thing. It's a lovely thing. It's so beautiful up there. But the word rainbow actually here means something far different than what you think it is because God does not say. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to put my beautiful, colorful, you know, bendy sky arch in the clouds for you. No, he says, I'm setting. Here's the word. My kaseth. It's my war bow, an instrument of war, an archer's bow. He says, I'm setting my weapon in the clouds. And yeah, you can see it's shaped like a bow. And because it comes out after it rains, we call it the rain bow. But God's telling Noah is this. What he's telling him is this. You can know I'm never going to bring judgment like this again because I'm going to put my weapon in the clouds. And when I, you see my weapon in the sky, you can know I'm going to keep my promise to you. He asked, well, how does a weapon in the clouds, how can that be God's promise to us? Well, Charles Spurgeon, British minister, had a sermon on it years ago when he called it actually the rainbow. And Spurgeon asked, well, if this really is God's weapon and it's supposed to remind us of his promise to save us, how could that be? What does it mean? And he says, oh, but look at the way the bow is pointing. It's not pointing down, is it? No, it's not pointing at us, is it? The bow isn't aimed at us. Which way is the bow aimed? Oh, it's aimed at the sky. It's aimed at the clouds. It's aimed at heaven. And therefore, the only way for an arrow to go anywhere on this bow is to go up into the heart of heaven itself. And Spurgeon says, oh, that sounds like something else that did happen. And he's right. Because centuries later, there was another man who obeyed God in his generation. Only unlike Noah, this man, Jesus, he didn't just obey partially. He obeyed completely. He obeyed perfectly. He went up like Noah on another mountain. And like Noah, he offered another sacrifice. But it was the sacrifice of his own body in our place to take into his own heart the storm and the judgment of God. And in doing so, he became the arrow that went up into the heart of heaven, the up into the heart of heaven's judgment and justice. And now when we see that weapon in the clouds, we can know that the justice of God towards us who put our faith in the greater ark, Jesus Christ, to save us, that that bow has been unstrung. The bow in the clouds has been unstrung. See, Noah, oh, Noah was saved while everyone perished. But Jesus Christ perished that all 
could be saved. That's his promise to us. Oh, but we're not done yet, church, because there's one more thing we can see that Noah couldn't. Because God isn't just promising something here. He's also pointing us to see something else as well. Did you know that this war bow appears, this rainbow, this Genesis 9 bow appears two more times in the Bible? The first is a bit later in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. And in Ezekiel 1, the prophet Ezekiel, he's got this vision, strange vision of the glory and the goodness of God. And he sees this mysterious throne and this mysterious, powerful person of peace on the throne. Who is it? Well, Ezekiel doesn't quite grasp it, but around that mighty figure, Ezekiel sees that war bow again, half a rainbow near the throne and he senses this person as a person again of power and peace and if you haven't guessed yet Ezekiel of course is seeing a vision in the future in his day of Jesus Christ the Messiah so how do you know it's Jesus well at the end of the Bible the book of Revelation last book hundreds of years after Ezekiel now the writer John has an almost identical vision and he sees fire like Ezekiel saw. He hears the voice of many waters like Ezekiel heard. He sees these strange creatures like Ezekiel saw. They're almost identical. But then we see one thing different, whereas Ezekiel only saw half a bow near the throne. Now John sees a whole bow, a whole rainbow, a full rainbow going all the way around the throne. He sees the glory of God completed in full. He said, well, what's the difference? Why was there only half a bow before, but a full one now? What happened between Ezekiel and John? Come on, church. What happened? Oh, Jesus happened. Yeah, that's right. He came to earth and experienced the storm. He took all of that into his heart, right, didn't he? That we could have peace with God. He's our greater ark of salvation. He's our greater Noah because Noah's name means peace. Jesus is the prince of Noah, the prince of peace for us. And because of this now, he becomes the Lord, the God of the final thing that we all need in our lives. He becomes the God of the second chance. The second chance. God's in the business of giving second chances to humanity, to people, nations, you, me, us. Because of Jesus, we can all have a second chance. And that's why Spurgeon, in his sermon in his day, final thought, exhorted his church to see that great bow in the clouds. When he said, when you see the colors, see this. He said, look up, believer, to the person of Christ. Behold the joy of God. He who sees Christ sees the Father. God's justice meeting and blending into his truth. God's truth melting into his mercy. That mercy melting into his love. That love in contact with his faithfulness. And so every attribute standing side by side with its next of kin, the whole of them absolutely necessary to complete the glory of that arch, to make the arch a harmony and a very music of colors. Beloved, such is Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, put it like this. He, Jesus, left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me.